All right, we're continuing our More to the Story. There's More to the Story series. Um, we have been through Adam and Eve. We've been through Cain and Abel. Last week we did uh, Noah and the ark and the flood. And tonight we set our attention on an individual named Melchizedek. And last week uh, I was talking to Zeke and kidding with him a little bit. Last week um, we read chapter 6. And seven, and did we get into eight? I think we may have gotten into eight last week. Um, yeah, we got into eight. We read like three chapters in the book of Genesis, talking and trying to put context into this uh, event. And tonight, we'll see how many verses we're going to read in the Old Testament. And I'll just give you a little hint. It's not going to be near three chapters. But there's so much importance in the verses that we do read. So we do find this account in Genesis chapter 14. There has been a war among the kings. And here we find this story that we're going to pick up with in verse 17. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 through 20. So not many verses here. Here's what it says. Then after his return home, this is talking about Abraham, from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, I've been practicing on that, and it didn't really, it really didn't help. And uh, so <laughs> there's no way that I still need many, many years to make that flow off the tongue. So apologize for that. So after the defeat of that guy and the kings who with him, the king of Sodom, and went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, Here's where we pick up. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. You know what you've just heard in those few verses? You've just heard a foreshadowing of Christ. There's so much detail and there's so much beauty in those few verses that we're going to unpack tonight. But I never want us to come to this, these set of verses again and our hearts and our minds do not just scream forward to the cross and to Christ and how Melchizedek is pointing to Christ. He's a shadow, a type of the one who is to come. So before we dive into this, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. God, thank you for the good day it's been. We, we're so thankful to open your word, preach your word, and we just give you the glory for that. I pray, Lord, that you would help me tonight as we go through uh, these verses and unpack Melchizedek. Lord, let us just have a greater understanding of what this means and how he is foreshadowing you. And Lord, let our hearts just be in awe of you, like we say so often. And Lord, let us just worship you more deeply tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you tonight, and if I said, well, can you tell me the most quoted Old Testament verse that is quoted in the New Testament? Would anybody have an answer for that? What Old Testament verse is quoted and cited the most in the New Testament? Well, that would come to us in the book of Psalms. That would come to us in the 110th chapter, and it would come to us in the first verse. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse that finds its way into the New Testament. And here's what that verse says. The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is speaking of the reign of Christ as he is setting beside the ancient of days and he is ruling and reigning. That is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It speaks of the kingship of Christ. It speaks of his reign and his dominion. That's no accident that that's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Well, let's go down a few verses and see if we find anyone in particular here in these next few verses. 
Verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Again, speaking of ruling here, the scepter. Saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So here we have just a few verses after the most quoted Old Testament verse into the New Testament, which speaks of the kingship of Christ. We have this mention of Christ being a priest forever. And here's where we're really going to drive home this point tonight. According to the order of Melchizedek. So what is this order of Melchizedek? What separates Melchizedek's priesthood from all the other priests and the high priests that we find in the Old Testament? Well, that's where we start to begin to find our first foreshadowing of Christ. We go back to Genesis 14 just for a moment. And it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. Here's why this is so important to understand. Because when we were just at in Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4, we have a link between kingship and priesthood in the form of Christ. Why is that so important? In the Old Testament, when it came to the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, that the kingly line, the kingly pre, or the kingly line, those who could be kings came out of the tribe of Judah. We find that in uh, Genesis chapter 49. I'll read it really quickly and briefly here so we can get an idea. When we were in Psalm 110, you heard me read about the scepter. And we find here in Genesis 49, as Jacob is giving the blessings here to his children, his sons, he turns his attention to Judah. And we find this in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. It says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. As a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, his teeth white from milk. And here we have this, this verse, these verses that begin to show that it is the scepter that will not depart out of Judah. All the kings that we have in Israel in the Old Testament, they came out of the tribe of Judah. You see the mention of lion here. You've heard of Christ being the lion of the tribe of Judah. So all the kings that we find in the Old Testament in Israel, they were from the tribe of Judah. And this is important because if you were not from the tribe of Judah, you couldn't be a king. There, you couldn't be a king unless you came from the line of Judah. Well, what about the priests? Well, the priests, they came out of the line of the Levites. And we find that in Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 8. It begins to tell there that it would be from the Levites that the priest would arise. So if one was to be a priest in the service of God, they would have to come from the, the Levites. And if they were to be a king, they would have to come from the tribe of Judah. There was no mixing a person could not be both. You couldn't be a king and a priest in the Old Covenant. Couldn't do it. Because you find two different lines. One is Judah, one is Levi. You can't cross those according to the law and how it was in the Old Testament. But here we have this mention according to Melchizedek. What is Melchizedek? He's a king and he's also a priest. This is foreshadowing Christ as Christ comes from the line of Judah. He is the king of kings. He's the eternal king, but he's also our high priest. You see, the old covenant would not allow a priest and a king. One person could not be both. But here comes Melchizedek before the law. 
who was a priest and a king. And in Melchizedek, we have this link between kingship and priesthood, which no one in the old covenant could do. But who does fulfill that? It's Christ. The order of Melchizedek speaks to that, both priest and both king. This is foreshadowing Christ, the king of kings and our great high priest. And you say, well, is this really a big deal? To, to, to have this separation between a, a priest and a king and to, to really make this distinction between the, the lineages here and the tribes, is that, is that such a big deal? Well, I'm glad you asked that because now we're going to turn our attention to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We have an example here in the Bible where we find a king. His name was Uzziah. And he was from the tribe of Judah. We know that because he was king. And King Uzziah had success as a king. Uh, he, he gained fame. He, he was famous because he developed strategies and these uh, inventions of war and weapons. And he became well known among the people. But that well knowing that came about with all his success began to go to his head and he began to get pride in his heart. And he was so proud of the job he was doing as king that he did the unimaginable. He thought that he could go into the tabernacle of God, to the temple of God, and perform the duties of a priest. Let's read what happens in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16 through 23. It says this, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This is the job of a priest. Remember, he's a king. He's from Judah. Can't be a priest and king. But he was so proud that he goes in to begin to do these priestly duties. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord before the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke, yes, the, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out of, because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave, which belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. Here we have an example of one from the line of Judah, King Uzziah, who was so proud and so boastful that he thought he could do the job as a priest. And when he entered into the sanctuary of the Lord, the priest met him, said, you don't belong here. This is for the sons of Aaron, the Levites, get out. And he became enraged and leprosy broke out over his whole body. On his forehead is where it began. And he spent the day cut off from the people until he died. It's a serious matter. It's a serious matter. He tried to be a priest. He tried to do the priestly roles. But he wasn't allowed to do that because he was from the tribe of Judah. You see, you can't mix the kingship and the priesthood in the Old Covenant. But before the old covenant, there was one who came, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who is both king and priest, pointing to the one who is the king of kings and the high priest of God, that is Christ. And what I find so interesting is this. 
is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Isaiah chapter 6. We have been there so often. This is where we see that that. Christ, this is where John sees Christ high and lifted up in the, in the train of his, his robe fills the temple. And we see that the seraphim are there and his, their eyes are covered. With two wings, they cover their eyes. With two wings, they cover the feet. And with two wings, they fly in service for God. And you know that, that cry around the throne, the seraphim cry out continuously, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah sees the glory of God, the holiness of God. And what does he do? He realizes who he is. He says, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. It is that story that we find in Isaiah 6. It is in that story we find Christ seated on the throne in all his ruling, in all his reigning, in all of his glory. But do you remember how Isaiah 6 started? In the year that King Uzziah died. It's the same one we just mentioned that tried to be both priest and king. And he couldn't do it. And he died. And I don't think it's an accident that Isaiah 6 starts with the year King Uzziah died. Isaiah sees one who's on the throne. The one who is holy, holy, holy. The one who is both king and our eternal high priest. We could just preach a whole sermon on that. Melchizedek, both king of Salem and priest of the God most high. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the great high priest. The shadowing of Melchizedek is showing that one would come as a king and a priest. That's the order of Melchizedek. It's pointing to Christ. Where Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the true king and the high priest high and lifted up, who is thrice holy. And now we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 7 where we'll spend the majority of the rest of these points of the shadowing of Christ in Melchizedek. We go to Hebrews chapter 7. And lo and behold, if you have the NASB 1995 over the heading of your chapter 7, even though you know, you know that in the original writing of this, the author did not have over the title of chapter 7, Melchizedek's priesthood like Christ's. It It wasn't in red. He didn't have that there. And there wasn't a chapter 7. But we find the whole chapter 7 talking about Melchizedek, talking about the priesthood, talking about Christ. So let's begin to look at this and let's begin to be in awe. Not only, we've already seen the awe that we should take away from this story that he's pointing to one who's a priest and a king that was not allowed in the Old Testament. But Christ fulfilled this in his coming as he's the order of Melchizedek. So let's begin to read chapter 7. It says this, For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We'll come back to that. I want you to think about this just for a moment as we will end with this. Of all the people that Melchizedek could have appeared to, of all the people, why Abraham? Why did he appear to Abraham? He could appear to anybody in the Old Testament. He could appear to Adam. He could appear to Moses. But why Abraham? We'll come to that. But just begin to think about it. So it says this in verse 2. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all. And then we begin to see this first, well, not first. We've already been talking about the priest and the kingship. But in this chapter, we begin to see something remarkable. By the translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Melchizedek's name is formed by the Hebrew words, Melech and Tzedek. And when you bring his name together, you have Melchizedek's name, meaning King of Righteousness. It seems fitting as the one who's foreshadowing Christ, who would be the king and the priest. His name would be the King of Righteousness. We find uh, examples and verses in the Bible. Let me just read these really quickly here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, we have Paul saying this, But by His doing you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He tells us that it is Christ who is righteousness. 
Jeremiah 23, 16 will tell us, or 23, 6 will tell us the same thing. In Jeremiah chapter 23, and in verse 6, it says this, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. He is the king eternal, but he's the king of righteousness. He is without sin. He is perfect and he is pure. And you know as well as I do why it's so important that he is the king of righteousness. You know why it's so important that he lived a perfect life. This king came. The eternal king came, humbled himself in the incarnation. And he lived a perfect, righteous life. He fulfilled all righteousness. And you know why that's important, because it is that righteousness, His righteousness, the righteousness from the King of righteousness that is imputed to all those who believe. That is the righteousness to which we merit our interest in the heaven, not our merit, but His. So Melchizedek's name even means King of righteousness, pointing to the true King, of, which is Christ, who is our righteousness. But then it goes and it says, then also King of Salem which is king of peace. So we see that Melchizedek is king of Salem, which means king of peace. And we know that Jesus is the prince of peace, the king of righteousness, the prince of peace. And then we find something even more amazing to the story. In Psalm 76, verse 2, we find this verse. Psalm 76, I said verse 2, let's go to verse 1 and 2. It says, God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. So not only is His name King of Righteousness, not only is He King of Salem, which means peace, Christ is the Prince of Peace, but do you know that Salem was the ancient name for Jerusalem? Look how Jerusalem ends. S-A-L-E-M. We read in Psalm 76 that, Christ, that His dwelling place is in Salem. In antiquity, the name for Jerusalem was known to be Salem. Isn't that amazing? How this mysterious person that comes to us in Genesis 14 for three verses speaks so much about Christ. He's the king. He's the priest. His name means King of Righteousness. He's from Salem, which would have been Jerusalem. And he's from the place which means peace. But that's not it. We would be good and well, and our minds would be amazed at Melchizedek if we stopped there, but we can't stop there. Verse 3 says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. If you know anything about antiquity, the thing that was so important was genealogy. I mean, go to the Old Testament and just look at all the genealogy. And then you open up with Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and it's genealogy. It was such a huge thing of genealogy. But here comes Melchizedek, and lo and behold, they can't find his genealogy. It's as if he doesn't have a beginning, and they can't find his end. He doesn't have a death certificate, if you will. And it said in this, so he's made like the Son of Man. You think that's a coincidence? That he's without a genealogy that they could find? It's not a coincidence. He's one like the Son of God. It, they don't know who his mother was. They don't know who his father was. It doesn't look like he has a beginning. It doesn't look like he has an end. If that doesn't point to the aseity, the eternal life of God, I don't know what does. That Christ is not a created being. He is eternal. He has life in himself. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is life. He is true being. And here, as Melchizedek didn't have a genealogy that they could physically look at and see, it was as if he had no beginning, no end, no mother or father. This was so he could be made like the Son of God. 
And why is that important? Because if he doesn't have an end of days, then he has a permanent priesthood. We're going to find that in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Law, what stopped people from being a priest forever was that they were humans, and guess what they would do? They would die. They were limited to from continuing on in their permanent priesthood by human death. And we know that Melchizedek died. He was a human being, but it, it doesn't have as a record of that, which begins to just point to one who is eternal. And because he's in the order of Melchizedek, Christ lives forever, which means that his priesthood is forever. And that's how long he intercedes for his people. We'll get to it in a little bit. You want to know why one of the reasons we believe in eternal security, that you cannot lose your salvation? Because the Bible says that as long as Christ lives, he's interceding for his elect. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. It's God who justifies. It is God who's interceding. And how long does he intercede? As long as he lives. How long does he live? Forever. So for us to say that we can lose the salvation which has been freely bestowed upon us is to say that our eternal high priest has stopped interceding for his elect. Just think about what's at stake by saying that. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but was made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. This is speaking to the eternal nature of Christ. No beginning, no end. No end to his priesthood. He is eternal. And you remember what we talked about Sunday? Because he is eternal life, he's the only one who can give eternal life. This is the sovereign God, the King of kings, the high priest eternal. I love that detail that Melchizedek is without genealogy, pointing to one that is to come, which is Christ. Verse 4, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in, the case, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What is this business of tithing and greater and lesser? Well, in antiquity, it, was be, it would be that the lesser would pay tithes to the greater. And here we find that Abraham, who's the father of faith, we find that he, Abraham, is paying tithes to Melchizedek. What does this mean? It shows the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham. The lesser would pay to the greater. That's what he tells us here. And now Abraham, who's the father of faith, is paying to the one who is representing Christ. It shows the superiority of Melchizedek both to Abraham and to the Levites because uh, it would be to the Levites that the tithe would get paid to help them and uh, work towards God. Christ is superior to Abraham and the Levites as to whom this promise dwells and resides. That's the whole crux of that matter, is that it was paid from the lesser to the greater, the Levites and Abraham. They were not as superior. They were inferior to this Melchizedek, who's pointing to Christ. That's the whole purpose of that. And then we continue on here. It says this. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, that means coming out of the priestly line there of Levi. For on the basis of it, the people received the law. So he says, if perfection was through this Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priesthood to arise? Again, we're going to find this phrase, according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. What does that mean? According to the order of Aaron is from the Levitical law. Right? It had to be a priest. You had to come out of the Levite tribe. 
And what the author here of Hebrews is saying is, if that law and the priestly roles in the Old Covenant, if they brought about perfection, why was there ever a need for one to come, not out of the order of Aaron and the Levitical law, but what was the point of that if it was perfect for there one to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? Well, here's why there was one that had to arise out of the order of Melchizedek. Because the law and the Old Covenant and the Mosaic law and the Levitical priesthood and all the priests in the Old Testament could not bring perfection. They simply couldn't do it. That's why they continued to go in year after year after year after year. The Day of Atonement would come and the, and the high priest would go in. He would make atonement for the sin of the people. And guess what would happen next year? He'd go back in. You know what happened next year? He'd go back in. And the next year, he'd go back in. It, it didn't bring about perfection because they were sinful in themselves. They had to make sacrifice for their own sin before they could make sacrifice for the sins of the people. The Levitical priesthood couldn't bring about perfection. So there had to be one that arose, not out of the order of Aaron and the Levites and that Levitical priesthood, but there had to be one that came what? Out of the according to the order of Melchizedek, which is Christ. Verse 12, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. What is he saying there? The one who comes in the order of Melchizedek is from a tribe to which has not been priest in this old covenant in Levitical priesthood. Now remember, Again, we, we come back to this point. The Levites were the tribe to which the priest came. But the one who came in the order of Melchizedek would come from the tribe that was not officiating at the altar in that covenant. It would come from another tribe. Which tribe did Christ come from? Judah. The kingly tribe. He was king and he was priest. That's what he's saying, that there would be one who would come in the order of Melchizedek, both priest and king, and not be the priest from this line that had officiated in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Law. For, verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Verse 15, And this is clever, clear still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17, For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18 of chapter 7, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weaknesses and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, which is what the Levitical priesthood is pointing to. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, and inasmuch as was not without an oath. For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, here's the oath from the Father, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus became the guarantee of a better covenant. Remember the question we went back to. If the Levitical priesthood brought about perfection, why would there be a need for one in the order of Melchizedek? Well, it was not perfection, and it did not bring about perfection. But there was a better covenant that was coming, and the one who would bring about this better covenant was not in a, from a line, a priestly line of the Levites, but he was in the order of Melchizedek, where he would be both priest and king, as he was from Judah. And then we come to verse 23, chapter 7 of Hebrews. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. We talked about this. The priests in the covenant were always changing because of the death of the priests. They would die. That prevented them from continuing forever. But Melchizedek here is being mentioned as a type of Christ with no ending of days or beginning of days, it's pointing to the fact that Christ's priestly role will never be stopped. Christ lives forever. He intercedes for His elect. He justifies them as long as He lives, and that's why we are eternally secure. 
So there were more priests in the old covenant. Why? Because they would die, here come another one. They would die, here come another one. They would die, here come another one. So there's a, just over and up priest upon priest. I think I read somewhere, somewhere around 84, either high priest or somewhere on that. I remember reading that number somewhere, but don't quote me on that. But a lot of priests, there was a lot that were going on. And it would be a recycle of a new one as death would come. Death would prevent them from interceding forever. But then in verse 24 of chapter 7, we find this. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Remember, Melchizedek did not have a genealogy which showed his end of days which was pointing to the one whom he would be pointing to who would have no beginning or end of days. And because he had no end of days, he would reign forever as king and he would intercede as high priest forever. Think about that just for a moment and how it applies to you. It applies to me. It applies to our justification and it applies to our intercession on behalf of him. Listen to it again. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He's interceding forever for his elect. That's how we're justified. He's interceding on our behalf. And that's what Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39 says. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. It's God who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? And then it begins to say, who will separate us from the love of God? And it lists a whole bunch of things, and it says, none of that. Nothing will separate us from God and His love and His interceding for us because He lives and He reigns and He intercedes as high priest forever. And then we come to verse 25. Therefore, as a result, now I, I got to be honest with you. Got to be honest with you. This is one of the verses that I remember hearing an awful lot growing up. I can remember this verse. I memorized this verse, but I didn't have a clue what this verse was actually saying. So now listen to it. It talks about Jesus continuing forever, holding his priesthood permanently. And then we find verse 25 starts with what? Therefore, as a result that he holds his priesthood forever, he is able to save forever. Not for a little bit of time. And then, whoops, lost it. That's not what it says. Because he intercedes forever, he is able to save forever. Those who draw near to God through him. And why can he save forever? Again, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's interceding for his elect forever. That's why he can save them forever. Our security forever resides in the fact that there is one in the order of Melchizedek who is the king of kings, our eternal high priest, and he has no end. And the fact that he has no end speaks to his forever eternal intercession for his elect. Think about that. That right now, before God above, our eternal high priest, who came from the tribe of Judah, is interceding for you. He's interceding on your behalf. And it's just not for today. It didn't just begin at when you profess faith in Him. It's not going to just stop in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. His intercession for His people continue forever. What a thought. Make no mistake about it, Melchizedek's pointing to Christ. And it's no coincidence that he has no end of days. That speaks to his eternal, pointing to the eternal priesthood that Christ would have. That's the comfort that we have as believers. Not because we do enough in our own merit to justify ourselves before God, but that we have this king and high priest pleading our behalf to the Father forever. It's truly amazing. Again, the 
high priest in the old covenant. They couldn't do that. Why? Because they would die. Ours is eternal. That's the point of the resurrection as well. That he lives forever. He intercedes forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 26, 4. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people because he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Give me just a couple minutes because I can't get to this point and not go to Hebrews 10. We know that the old covenant, these priests would come and their job was never done. You've heard me say this before. The high priest's job was never done. There was constantly sacrifices that had to be made. There was constantly work to be done. Again, if the Levitical priesthood was perfect, why would there be one that comes in the order of Melchizedek? It wasn't able to fill that perfect requirement. It required one in the order of Melchizedek. There had to be a better covenant and it was coming in the form of Christ. And picture this scene. I just mentioned it earlier that all the people there, they would come to the Day of Atonement when in Leviticus 16, the high priest would go in. They would have the scapegoat. They would have the goat they would slaughter. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And that would be the atonement for the sin of the people. Remember, that's the time where the high priest put aside his garments of glory to perform the work that had to be done. After the work was done of sacrifice, he would put on his garments of glory, pointing to the eternal Son of God, who in his humility came to do the work of the high priest. And upon his resurrection, ascends to intercede in glory. But they would do that. And then next year, They would have to do it again. And maybe that high priest would die and he'd be a new high priest next year. It wasn't the same one forever because of death. They had to offer a sacrifice for their sin and also for the sin of the people. But Christ didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. He was holy, undefiled, and perfect. And history tells us that the temple and the tabernacle was missing something. If you were to look around you wouldn't find any place to sit down. That symbolizes that their work was never done because they would have to come back next year and offer sacrifice again. There was not a place to sit down for the priests, the high priests in the old covenant because their work wasn't done. With that being said, I draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, tells the law is a shadow of the things to come. It will be fulfilled in Christ. And he begins to talk about in this section, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. It can never make them perfect. Remember, if the Levitical priesthood was perfect, why would there be one come in the order of Melchizedek? It tells us here that it was not perfect. It could not make them perfect. Otherwise, they would have they would would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. 
Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The old covenant is going to be done away with, obsolete, because there's a better way coming, a better covenant coming, one that would come in the order of Melchizedek. And look what happens in verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His sacrifice was enough. The one-time death on the cross was enough to cover and atone for all the sin of the sheep. It didn't have to be repeated. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. They don't sit down. Their job's not done. Their sacrifice isn't permanent. But there's one who's coming. In the order of Melchizedek, priest and king, has no beginning, has no end, king of righteousness from Salem. And look what verse 12 says. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Let me paraphrase for that for you. It is finished. The priest in the old covenant couldn't sit down because their work was never done and they could never permanently take away sin. But when this high priest, this king came, in the order of Melchizedek, it would be his once and all sacrifice. His one-time sacrifice would be enough. It would take away the sin. It would cleanse the sin of his people. And then he would set down because he came to do the work that he was sent to do. And then look what happens immediately in verse 13, where we started in Psalm 110, the most quoted verse from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies became a footstool for his feet. The kingship, the priesthood, it's in the order of Melchizedek and it's enough. The old covenant could not do, it could not complete, it could not fill, it could not fulfill. It was not perfected. It needed someone better, a better covenant. It was found in Christ, the one coming in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 14, just because we're here. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Do you see the work of the cross, the work of the King of Kings and the eternal high priest? Now, I want to just draw your attention to two things before we close. Do you remember in Genesis 14 where we started? Do you remember what Melchizedek brought? He brought two items. I'll read it to you. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Hmm. Here's what you're going to find out, and you're going to, as we work through types and shadows together, you're going to see bread and you're going to see wine pop up in multiple types and shadows. We see that that's the story of David. Before he encounters Goliath, there's bread and wine. You're going to find that when jo uh, Joseph is in his account, you're going to find bread and wine. What does this symbolize? What does that possibly mean, the bread and the wine? Let me take your attention to where we are in John. We're in an upper room. We're in the Last Supper. And what does he say about the new covenant? He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. There's the bread. Melchizedek, the king and the priest, the king of righteousness from Salem with no beginning, no end, is bringing the bread. 
This is pointing to Christ who on the cross would bring the bread. His body would be broken. And then we find the wine. You remember at the wedding of Cana when he turned the water into wine and he says, woman, my time is not now. My hour is not yet. But it's pointing to the cross. And it's in that upper room where he gives them the wine. He says, take drink. This is my blood. The new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Here Melchizedek bringing the wine is pointing to the blood that would be shed from the one that would come in the order of Melchizedek, Christ. Oh, don't miss it. It's no accident that he brings the bread and the wine pointing to the body that was broken and the blood that was shed by our king and high priest. And then I asked you this question, and this is where we'll close. Why did he show up? to Abraham. Why Abraham? But do you find something interesting also in this? Not only does he come in contact with Abram at the time, but what does he do? What does Melchizedek do to Abram? He blesses him. He blesses Abram. We know that God blessed Abram, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will bring, uh, make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was God who blessed Abram. And now Melchizedek is blessing Abram as well. I believe that the reason that he is blessing Abraham is because Abraham is the father of faith. We who place faith in Christ, the New Testament tells us that we are children of Abraham by faith. He, Abraham is the father of faith. And all who place faith in Christ are deemed righteous as Abraham believed in Christ and the promise. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And here we know that God blessed Abraham. And it says that Melchizedek, who's representing or, or a foreshadowing of Christ, blessed him as well. And where does the ultimate final fulfillment of that blessing to Abraham come? Who is that ultimate fulfillment found in? The one who Melchizedek represents. Listen to this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Abraham's told that he's going to be blessed. He's going to be the father of nations, of many nations. And it is through that promise that he believes. And it is through that promise that Abram is considered righteousness. And it would be through the giving of that son, Isaac, that Abraham would believe in that son and that promise that he would be counted righteous. It's the same way with us. As we believe in the eternal son, we are credited as righteous. God blessed Abraham. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Melchizedek pointing to Christ. It would be Christ who would be that fulfillment of that blessedness. It just goes full circle. We find it here in these few verses in Genesis. All those who believe in Christ are the children of Abraham by faith been declared righteous as he was. And we find the true meaning of blessedness in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 27. And being blessed by God is when he makes his face shine upon you. He lifts his countenance upon you. And the opposite of this is darkness. And that is why hell is described as a place of outer darkness. And we know that's in Romans chapter 4. It says that blessed are those whom sins are covered, whom the Lord does not take their sins into account, those who believe by faith like Abraham. And you can't forget the Sermon on the Mount. How do those Beatitudes start to all the believers? Blessed. 
Melchizedek blessed Abraham. God blessed Abraham. And that final blessing, that fulfillment comes in the form of the son, the one who comes in the order of Melchizedek. And we'll end with this. Do you remember Genesis 15? That's the next chapter. Let me turn there briefly. Abraham has promised a son. And Abraham says, you've not given me an offspring. I'm old. He says, I have one that's with me, my servant, Eliezer, Damascus. But God says, this man will not be your heir, but the one who comes from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he takes him outside and he points Abram's head, directs his attention to the stars in the heavens. And he says, count the stars, Abram, if you are able to count them, so shall your descendants be. He was counting you and me in those stars because we would be his descendants, we'd be his children by faith. Can you imagine that night? Look. If you can count them, that shall be your descendants. And Abram was just at this point comes about to verse six. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's our justification like Abraham. He believed by faith and he was credited as righteousness. But then we go down to verse eight and Abram says this. How may I know that I will possess it? You've heard me say this before, so I'll make it short. How would you promise someone something? Every time that I come to this text, I always use the example of the pinky promise. That's how in today's society that you really can promise someone that you mean business. Because they don't believe you by your word, but when you interlock your small fingers, it really means you're telling the truth. But how is God going to show Abram that his promise is true? Now he tells us this in verse 9. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. <clears throat> then he brought all these things to him, and he cut them in two, and laid each half opposite in the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great pain fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not yours, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Talking about slavery in Egypt. But I will also judge the nations whom they will serve and after, afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father and fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And here's how God shows his promise to Abram. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the Euphrates or the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. You say, what in the world? What? In antiquity, covenants were made by cutting. And this was something that they would do to show the authenticity and the seriousness of the promise. They would take animals and they would cut them. And they would make a, a walkway in between the carcasses. That's why it says they're on each side. And both parties would walk between those uh, cut carcasses. And here is basically the, the main thrust of that. I give you my word. Whoever walks between those animals, here's the word. That if I don't keep my word, let it be to me as it is to these animals. Let me die. And it would be both parties that would walk between those carcasses. But here, we have God in a theophany. 
showing up. We find that God appears, these manifestations called theophanies throughout the Bible. We see him in fire on Mount Sinai. We read that a few weeks ago. We find him in the burning bush in Exodus 3. We find him in various places in fire. He led the people uh, by the fire at night and by the pillar of cloud in the day. These are theophanies. These are the presence of God. And here we see another one where God himself in this theophany comes down and he passes in between those carcasses. Notice that he's the only one passing through. Abram's not passing through. It's only God himself. He's making this promise. And you say, what does that have to do? How can he? What? Let me translate it for you. What you've just seen by God alone in this theophany going between those carcasses of those animals. Here's what he's saying. Abram, if I don't keep my promise to you, let it be to me like these carcasses. Let me die and cease to be God. That's a serious promise. R.C., he asked if you could take one verse with you to prison. They asked him, if you went to prison, what book would you take? He said, I'd take the Bible. What, what, what book in the Bible would you take? He said, I'd take Hebrews. He said, what verse would you take? He said, I would take Genesis 15, verse 17. The sun had set, it was very dark, and there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Is that your favorite Bible verse? What God did to Abram that day is the hope we have in our soul. Because God promised Abram that he would bless him. And all who would believe, like Abram, would be considered righteous. And that promise still holds to us today. And we find this. We'll end with this. Do you remember where we started in Hebrews? It was chapter 7, wasn't it? But look what happens before chapter 7. It says this, and we will close. There's a lot here in Melchizedek. Now, remember, what we read here in Hebrews 6, 13 on, is about the carcasses being cut and God making this promise to Abraham. Listen. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by, by no one greater, he swore by himself. Who is he going to swear by that's greater than him? He can't swear by the world. He created the world. He can't swear by the stars and the sun and the moon. He created them. What's the greatest thing he could swear by? Himself. That's why he passed that day by those car carcasses in between. Saying, I will surely bless you Remember that Melchizedek blessed Abram. Surely I will bless you and will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as a confirmation as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, we're the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable or immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope of the hold of the hope set before us. It is that hope and that promise that we will be blessed like Abraham and considered righteous. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It just comes full circle. He blessed Abraham, the father of the faith.
fulfillment would be in the one that Melchizedek is representing. And he made, God made Abram that promise. And he swore by himself. And it is that that we have at anchor for the soul. To which our eternal king of kings and our eternal high priest entered into that veil. Past the veil as the forerunner. And how did he do it? In the order of Melchizedek. Oh, there's so much to Melchizedek. And I hope you see it. It's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to him, his kingship, his priesthood, and the one to whom that blessing would find its fulfillment. And for that, it's an anchor for our soul. Let's stop and think about it for a moment. About our king and our eternal priest. So I hope that when we look at this and we see Melchizedek, we see what it's pointing to and it's Christ. And with that being said, I hope as we end this tonight, you could agree with me on two things. Please agree with me on these two things. That the Bible is so much better than what we've made it. And when we look at Melchizedek, maybe you can agree that there's more to the story. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy, and we give you all glory. Father, I pray that we would understand the depths of your word tonight. Lord, we would understand what it means that you sent your son and he came in the order of Melchizedek. He is the king of kings. And he is the eternal high priest. Who right now is reigning and will forever reign. And who also is interceding for us and will forever intercede. And Father, tonight we thank you for this promise that you gave to Abraham, but we are participants of because we are those that you had in mind to who would believe and be considered righteous just as Abraham was. Lord, we thank you for that promise that you made to him because it's eternal. You swore by yourself and that is why it is an anchor for our soul. So Lord, let us think about tonight your kingship and your priestly duties that you're setting down, reigning and interceding. Lord, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.